I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and irregular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts, an irregular warfare podcast, the show that examines the mythos, loss history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of irregular warfare. Today, I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. This is Bill. Welcome to episode six of Chasing Ghost and a Regular Warfare podcast. Title of this podcast is Frameworks and Strategic Deficit Disorder. In response to comments and discussions with listeners, I discovered that in my first episode, Terms of Endearment, which in which I tried to set forth some of the language that we're going to employ to better understand irregular warfare, I neglected to talk about regular warfare or conventional warfare. And I want to take a brief pause and discuss one of my favorite movies, Quickly Down Under, in which Tom Selleck plays an American who goes down to Australia to do some dirty work with his rifle, not realizing that it's dirty work before he arrives. And I recommend the movie. Here's a spoiler alert. What I'm going to do is tell you what happens at the end of the film. So if you want to advance or not listen to the rest of this, please do. What Quigley does is he proves out throughout the entirety of the movie that he is quite the sharpshooter with his very exquisite sharps rifle in the late 1800s down in Australia. His employer makes an assumption that while he's good with the rifle, maybe he's not good with a pistol. That assumption, of course, costs his employer and some of his employees their lives when they take Quigley on by stripping him of his rifle and assuming that he can't handle a pistol with the alacrity that he does his rifle. So with that rough analog, I'd like to illustrate that while I consider myself rather expert in irregular warfare, one can't be expert in that without having a real deep understanding of the history, historiography, practice, and scholarship of conventional warfare. Otherwise, one would not know how to measure what makes something unconventional or irregular, as opposed to the larger framework of historical and contemporary warfare. So I'm going to cover some of that today, along with some recommendations of books, of course, maybe a film or two will creep along, we'll see. So I want to open this discussion with an echo of what I just said a moment ago, which is that while I am expert in irregular warfare, I cut my teeth on conventional warfare, being in the military, studying the great historical commanders, the great warfare that's occurred in the past from both a tactical, strategic, and operational and logistical perspective to get a full appreciation of what I was taking on. Because as a serving officer in the United States military, one like so many before me and so many planet-wide, we have this almost 4,000-year bloodless practicum that we can read deeply about to discover how to conduct warfare and how not to conduct warfare and what may lead to ends that one doesn't desire in the first place. So let's get right to the Argo and to the language so that we can have a consensus on what we're talking about here. When it comes to level of warfare, it's generally accepted East and West for the past 200 years that it's distilled into tactical, operational, strategic, and grand strategic. Now, 
less grand strategic. All of those tend to be the institutional nostrums that are used to describe how one conducts warfare and, and something of a ladder type utility. So for instance, tactical level of war, this will be the, the level of war at which the fighting actually takes place. The point of the spear. This is where the battles and the engagements are planned and executed to achieve military objectives that are assigned to these tactical units or task forces. Now, notice I use the word assigned because that takes us to the next level, which is operational. In the operational level of war, this is where campaigns take place and major operations are planned, conducted, and sustained to achieve strategic objectives. We'll discuss those in just a moment. And think of this as the choreography of all the major players at division and below that we have in Western forces and how they're going to play out on the battlefield. One will find if, and I don't think it's within the purview of this podcast to go into great detail on this, but one will find that from platoon to army group and everything in between, you can go out there and study that. And it's, it's pretty easy to get a measure of which one is tactical, which one is operational and which one is strategic. Now between operational and strategic, there is something that I find useful as a descriptor and an explanatory framework, and that's theater strategic, which means they may not be taking the global or political or economic means and consensus into characterization. But what they are doing is they're saying in this theater, for instance, one is familiar with the World War II where you have the Pacific theater of war and the European theater of war. And of course, in the European theater of war, we were fighting against the Axis campaign, uh, Axis forces there with the Germans, the Italians, and some of the lesser forces that, that were comprising the Axis at the time. And this was where Schaaf, the Supreme Allied commander, Eisenhower in this case, was the theater commander, and he could direct army groups and, and such and find out where they would have the best strategic means at the tactical and operational level to achieve what their planned objectives were, which brings us to the strategic level of war. Now, this level of war at which a nation, often as a member or a group of nations, as the allies of World War II, allies tend to characterize themselves since World War II, hence NATO, uh, alliances or coalitions, they have strategic security objectives and guidance that they share between themselves, and they develop these and use national resources to achieve these strategic objectives, which are served by tactical and operational components that go in the direction they're sent and are sustained in the direction that they're sent. And one can discuss what they do at the time once the battles emerge or the clusters of battles emerge. Of course, this brings us to something that was really popular with Tom Clancy. I can't, I, I don't know whether the adage belonged to him or he stole it from somebody else, but he's the one who said that while amateurs are concerned about tactics, professionals are concerned about logistics. And if anyone in the mid-century of the 20th century mastered logistics, one could look nowhere else but what Americans achieved in both theaters, in both the Pacific and the European theater. And what you discover is that if you don't have the logistical tail, if you don't have the logistical means, if you don't have the industrial means to satisfy that, then however great your strategic objectives are, you're not going to be able to fulfill them in warfare. 
And of course, that brings us to the last one, which is Grand Strategic. There's a guy by the name of Eduard Lutwak, and I highly recommend reading his books where he talked about the grand strategy of the Roman Empire and the grand strategy of a number of other historical entities. Really well thought out. The man's something of a Renaissance man, as John Cleese would say. And uh, very, how would I put it? He was very comprehensive, and he was very widely read and could take from a wide variety of disciplines and come to conclusions that were sometimes surprising, but always innovative. That's Lutwak, L-U-T-T-W-A-K, very interesting cat. So from the tactical to the grand strategic level, we're discussing here what is the implication of, of these levels of combat. And this is conventional irregular warfare does not mean that this doesn't take place in a regular warfare. And we will talk about that later in this episode and surely in episodes to come. But what I want to emphasize is this. Think of building a house. At the tactical level, you're going to have your plumbers, your carpenters, your roofers, all the people who are assigned the commodity areas to build all those various components of the house. The choreographer of that house would be at the operational level. That would be your foreman. One could say that at the strategic level, you would have your architect, if you were to retain one, to design your house. And the strategic level would also be the one who would interact with all the local city, county, and state, maybe even federal, if you happen to live near a a body of water. And all of the implications for that in building your home. It's a rough analog, but I think it's an accurate analog of how all these players work and operate. So let's review real quickly. What that means is that at the tactical level, that is the direct application of combat power. At the operational level, it's the choreography of all the combat power available at theater and below. And at the strategic level, it is all those things that I've just described and also trying to template and extrapolate the political, economic, and warfare implications of taking these on a grander scale. All right, so we've, we've covered that ground to get our, our house in order, as it were, in how we're going to discuss both conventional slash regular warfare and irregular warfare. One of the characteristics when it comes to riffing off of what I just described is that irregular warfare tends to be able to achieve what we refer to as strategic compression. And what strategic compression means, quite simply, is that one employs tactical means, in this case, small units, maybe expensive units, but small units, to achieve strategic aims. One could say that the search for WMD in the first Gulf War and the second Gulf War could be described as strategic compression. One could say that when in the uh, failed coin operations in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Horn of Africa, Syria, all of those by all the Western players where they would deliver the night letters and they would bang on people's doors and abduct people in the middle of the night and take them back to be interrogated, what one, what one calls uh, colloquially in the military, trying to find how high-value players and networks to come back and fill out intelligence gaps so that one could extrapolate further on who to go after on that list, the deck of cards that was issued in Iraq, those kind of things. So that would be where you you 
see a kind of interface there with strategic compression and what I was just characterizing with the tactical, operational, and strategic levels of war. So let's discuss a German concept, and we'll be discussing a lot of German concepts in this podcast series. And this, this one is called, um, and I apologize to my German listeners if I'm torturing the proper pronunciation, Auftragstaktik. And it simply means mission command. And it simply means this also. It means trusting and allowing for subordinate commanders to do what the mission dictates when the fog and friction of war throws the plans that were made in the dumpster fire. What this would lead to is several things on many levels. Now, first and foremost, my colleague and, um, and I, Don Vandergriff, who's a dear friend of mine, lives on the East Coast. He's written on Mission Command. He's done a lot of work to improve, not that the Army nor the other services have made these reforms, but he's worked on a lot of personnel reforms. And the way we conduct our wars at the tactical and operational level popularizing this concept of German mission command. As a matter of fact, if you look at the latest Army ADPs and ADRPs that came out, 3.0 for operations, they give much lip service to mission command. But it is my understanding, my observation, that while they give the lip service to trusting in subordinate commanders, the Sovietization and the sclerotic framework of military command in the U.S. Armed Forces hasn't changed since that was issued in the new 3.0. The numeral 3 comes from S3, G3, wherever echelon you're at, which refers to operations. For instance, S1 is administrative, S2 is intelligence, S3 is operations, S4 is logistics, S5 tends to be planning and things like that, and it goes up on the line as far as those designators, and they can be uh, an S preamble, a G preamble, depending on the level and hierarchy at which you are. Are you at brigade combat team? Are you at battalion? Are you a regiment? Are you a division? And these are things that you can all look up, so I don't have to bore you with the details of that. And I will tell you that the characterization of U.S. special operations and allied special operations, especially when one looks at the special air service and the special boat service in the U.K., and some of the more other sophisticated special operations organizations within the European frameworks tend to practice this, and they have great trust in their subordinate leaders and such. As a matter of fact, special forces as a branch in the U.S. Army is one in which, while the officers may have the conceit and hubris to think that they own and operate the branch, in the end, it is the NCOs and the warrant officers at what is characterized as a lower level below the officers who really run the entire branch and and make and give it the lubricity and innovation that lets it drive into the future and do great things. So back to mission command at the conventional level and the regular forces. While it is given the lip service, it isn't necessarily practiced. That's too bad, but then again, that's going to speak to what I'm going to talk about towards the end of this podcast when I discuss strategic deficit disorder. So I wanted to take this a step further. So what we have is we have this Prussian culture from 1805, after tremendous losses, they reformed themselves, 1805 until the tombstone in 1945 when the Wehrmacht is dead. 
What we discover when we examine this historically, philosophically, and epistemologically is that the German armed forces were terrific when it came to the tactical level, somewhat terrific when it came to the operational level, but not so terrific when it came to the strategic level. And the strategic level in the end, that is going to be the calibration and the output mechanism that will determine success. There's a a military writer for World War II who fortunately speaks German. I don't speak German. So he's able to interrogate and read the primary and secondary sources. And he comes up with some really interesting conclusions. As much as I, as a former professional military officer and observer, both a practitioner and a scholar, look to the German army of World War II and even World War I for insights into how to really develop tremendous armed force capability, man for man, he put some cold water on on facets and arguments that have been appended to say that the Wehrmacht is what we should look at, that the Wehrmacht is the finest organizational line units that have ever been fielded since the dissolution of the Roman army at the end of the 5th century. Now, what we discover with Robert Satino is that he's written several books, but the one that I wanted to talk about today was a book called Death of the Wehrmacht, the German Campaigns of 1942. Now, he goes so far, and I'm paraphrasing, as to say that the launching of Barbarossa in 1941, this enormous German campaign across a hundreds-of-mile-wide front to drive into Russia proper, drive to Stalingrad, Moscow, and take them out of the war, rather hubristic, rather ambitious, But in the end, it didn't work. And what Satino says is he says in 1941, the summer of 1941, the launching of Barbarossa, that was the end in that it took, and I've mentioned this before in one podcast, I think, uh, it it took four years for the German corpse to die. But that ambition and that ill-considered move to invade Russia, and and that's, that's something that we can discuss at length elsewhere, was probably not the keenest thing to do after all of the advances and successes in Western Europe up until that point. So I'd like to quote Robert Satino at length here from his book. And this is uh, page 305 of Death of the Wehrmacht. Quote, Indeed, the new face of German command, 1942 style, was evident in the absurd Haltbefehl to Rommel in the desert and the incessant debates between Hitler and Field Marshal Liszt about how to seize the relatively minor Black Sea port of Tuapsi. Georges von Durflinger, the first Field Marshal in the history of the Brandenburg, Prussia, would probably have started a fistfight with his lord, the great elector, rather than suffer such indignity. Likewise, at the crisis of the Battle of Zorndorf, Frederick the Great ordered his cavalry commander, Friedrich Wilhelm von Seidlitz, to launch an immediate counterstroke on the left of the hard-pressed Prussian infantry. When it seemed late in coming, the king sent a messenger to Seidlitz with orders to march immediately with threats if he did not do so. Seidlitz was a commander who moved only when he judged the moment ripe, however. His response was one of the most famous moments in the history of the Prussian army. Known to every cadet who had passed through the Krieg's academy, and certainly part of the mental lexicon of every German commander in the field in 1942, tell the king that after the battle, my head is at his disposal, Seidlitz told the king's messenger. 
but meantime, I hope he will permit me to exercise it in his service. Now, I'm stepping out of the book here, and I wanted to remind everybody that this is a supreme characterization of Alftrag's tactic, of mission command, of trusting one subordinate, even though it appears that the king did not trust the subordinate, but Seidlitz pulled this off as a result of what is called the Prussian culture of disobedience. Back to the quote. Those days were evidently long gone by 1942. Hitler took a number of heads in, his, in this campaign while the fight was still raging. Bach, List, Halder, not to mention poor General Heim of the 48th Panzer Corps. The new dispensation was most evident in the attenuated struggle with the Stalingrad Kessel. Paulus and the 6th Army may have been cut off from supply, but they certainly weren't cut off from communication. From Hitler's first intervention, his orders in, 19, in November 1922, that, quote, 6th Army will hedgehog itself and await further orders, end of quote. Continuing the book, to the last. The January 24th refusal of permission to surrender. The Fuhrer had been the de facto commander of the Stalingrad pocket. This is not to ex- explicate Paulus's admittedly pedestrian leadership before the disaster and his curious mixture of fatalism and obsequiousness to the Fuhrer once he had been encircled. Quote, you're talking to dead men here, he had hissed at a Luftwaffe officer trying to explain the difficulties of the air transport problem. Indeed, Paulus may actually have welcomed Hitler's interventions as a way of evading his own responsibility for the disaster. Hitler did not kill the concept of flexible command, whether one calls it the independence of the subordinate commander or Alftrag's tactic. Radio did. I repeat, radio did. It is unfortunate when a general on the spot may no longer order a retreat, but things have reached an absurd pass when a commander no longer has the authority to surrender his army without permission from someone a thousand miles away. End of quote. To me, those two words are extraordinary, and I think so sublime and, and, um, and, and just freighted with meaning. What killed mission command? What killed subordinate commanders' independence to do what the fight told them right in front of their very own eyes? Radio did and in communications. And I would tell all of you who are listening and anybody who has had experience in the Middle East or wherever you've been in a combat theater in your lifetime or spoken to people who were in combat theaters in their lifetime, when communications are available to subordinate commanders, to subordinate commanders who are in the field at the tip of the spear, the bloody tip of the spear, maybe even in the performance of their martial duties, and somebody on high who does not have their context nor their vision of what's happening right in front of their face orders them or suggests to them to do something that may, out of context, very well put the entire mission in the hazard. This is the way modern warfare works. And with the mission command allegedly adopted by the army, they wanted to say that even though, quote, radio did, end of quote, even though that's the case, we are going to trust our subordinate commanders to do the right thing. I have to tell you, anecdotally, I have seen no evidence of the army not being Sovietized or the American military forces not being Sovietized in the way they treat warfare. So let's move on. That gentleman's name is Robert M. Satino. 
he wrote The German Way of War, From the Thirty Years' War to the Third Reich, and Death of the Wehrmacht. And he's written a number of other books, too, that are just really extraordinary. I also want to mention the absolutely extraordinary work of one David Stahel, who speaks both German and English. He's written books on Retreat from Moscow, A New History of Germany's Winter Campaign, 41 to 42, Soldiers of Barbarossa, Operation Typhoon, Kiev, 1941. I, I have yet to read all of his books, but I intend on collecting all of them because he provides an absolutely extraordinary, accurate, even-handed record of the Wehrmacht committing this kind of grand strategic seppuku, this, this kind of suicide from 1941 until April of 1945. Now, we're going to talk about Colonel John Boyd sometime in the future, U.S. Air Force colonel, who was responsible for the development of the F-16, who was responsible for a lot of the rudimentary and basic early jet age USAF experimentation and employment of combat tactics and air-to-air fighting. I do wish he had written books, but he didn't. But there are books like Robert Coram's biography that I recommend on Boyd the Man and Boyd the Soldier and Boyd, Boyd the Pilot and Boyd the Strategic Philosopher, which is what we're going to be talking about today. In the future, I plan on doing an episode or two or three on John Boyd, so I don't want to spend an extraordinary amount of time on his biography. But what I do want to discuss is that Boyd had this roadshow, this presentation that he would do, where he would talk about strategic frameworks and how they worked. Well, what I like to do is I, I love to boil down, if I can, what are some of the key takeaways? What are some of the things that these great minds have said that really applies to what I'm trying to get out of this? So here's an extraordinary, and I'm paraphrasing here, that I took out of uh, reading his presentation. What he says is, what is strategy and grand strategy about? I, I know this sounds devastatingly simple when I, when, I, when, I, when I say this out loud, but I want you to grok it. I want you to understand. I want you to sleep on it and think about it and tell me why I'm wrong if you disagree. But he says that the true success at the root of all strategies and grand strategies is that you form alliances and you either use or employ those alliances to isolate your enemy or your threat. It's that simple. That, I, you know, I've read a, a number of strategy books and I've discovered that Lutvak, for instance, who I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, Roots of Strategy in some of my Collegiate career, especially when it comes to professional military education training, things like that, you know, we steeped ourselves in that kind of thing. Well, what I've discovered is time and again, when I reflect back on it, he really makes an important point there that if one doesn't do that at the strategic and grand strategic level, which is something that the Wehrmacht, namely Hitler, did not do during World War II, you will not succeed in the end. And I would like to put a notion to bed that's popular out there, and that's that Americans, when it comes to operational art, that which is between tactical and strategic art, we've been rank amateurs and we sort of learned on the move in World War II and such, and that we really didn't write the book on it. Well, 
I have been convinced by an author by the name of Michael Matheny, who wrote a war called Carrying War to the Enemy, American Operational War Art to 1945. He makes a really great case that since the end of the 19th century, American operational art not only exceeded that of what has been characterized as the supremacy of German operational art, but in so many ways it was superior to it. Whether this is logistics, whether this is alliances, whether this is strategic planning in order to best employ those tactical and operational assets and choreograph them in a fashion where you meet the end, terrific. Now, where I part ways with Metheny, and he only teases this, is that I find that the American and the Western enterprises in the 19th and 20th century, and now even in the 21st century, tend not to extrapolate the second and third order effects and the unintended consequences of employing these martial enterprises, whether it's regular warfare or regular warfare. For instance, for instance, I recommend yet another book. I find that when I'm uh, quoting or reading books from other people who are far smarter than me, that I can sort of take the wisdom that I can divine from these books and apply it to this. A Leap of Faith, Hubris, Negligence, and America's Greatest Foreign Policy Tragedy by Michael J. Mazar. To read this book is to see a 260-car pileup in the dead of winter when all of it could have been prevented, but it wasn't. In this case, they're talking about the run-up to, as a minor player, the Afghan war, but the run-up to the Iraq war. And the way through both formal and informal channels in the American presidency, the American executive, and the American legislature, that they managed to careen into all the wrong decisions at the same time to culminate in the invasion of Iraq. And to have the hubris, the, the inconsideration, the lack of foresight to say, okay, if we win militarily and we topple Saddam Hussein, what are we going to do after that happens, believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, we did not extrapolate that as a country. I'm, I am uh, remonstrated by some of my, my listeners using the term we, so please excuse me. The American government at the time employed a kind of wishful thinking in which they said, well, once we militarily and politically topple Hussein and his Sunni minority alliance to run what is basically a Shia majority country, well, well, we'll just ride by the seat of our pants. Number one, that's no way to run your own personal life, much less running a country and running a country that has gone on a fool's errand. Thank you, Scott Horton, to go into a country like this, topple it, destroy it, civiliza civilizationally challenge it, and not even manage to have a plan in mind of what you want to achieve. A slight segue. I have been trained in the military to do what they call branches and sequels and contingencies. And what this is all about, and, and I guarantee you there are, there are listeners out there who are listening to this podcast who do this, and you guys have never had an hour or a day in the military. All it is is where in your head you say, I'm going to do the following things. Now, if things go awry or not the way I want, I have insufficient funds, whatever the case may be where you can't achieve the goals you set out to do, do you have a contingency in mind? Do you have a plan in mind? Do you have 
branches and sequels where you look at those and you say, well, this is what I'm going to do. For instance, in Special Operations Forces, we have operational checklists. And these things can run to hundreds of items on the checklist. So if you're in a bird heading to an objective, you're in a VIC heading to an objective, or you're at the objective, on this checklist, things occur and you check them off as you're going through your timeline. If something doesn't occur at the timeline you specified on there, you have conducted the branches and sequels and the brief backs and back briefs to determine, well, what am I going to do if this happens? What it's trying to do, and it can never do it perfectly because that can never be done, is Clausewitzian fog and friction, which is those unplanned things that happened. You try to plan for what is going to be your response when that occurs. The country didn't do that. As a matter of fact, I would suggest this. When America went into Afghanistan and Iraq, I'm thankful that Al-Qaeda did not base themselves in Mexico City because using the logic of invading Afghanistan, we would have invaded Mexico because of Al-Qaeda having rented an apartment or two in Mexico City to conduct their attacks on 911. But what I discover is that the expansion by the Obama administration into Libya and the Horn of Africa and eventually Syria, and all the rest of it, all this was done in a fashion that did not consider the second and third order effects of what would occur. As a matter of fact, as a result of going into Syria and as a result of going into Libya, it so energized Al-Qaeda and all of its affiliates and all of its like-minded Islamic armies, that's where ISIS and Daesh came from in Afghanistan and Iraq. We quite literally, and you will find historically, America is very good at this. America quite literally developed their own threats, went in, steeled these threats, and made the threats larger as a result of the direct actions that they took as regular and irregular forces on the ground. Hence, we come to the conclusion, and that's the title of this episode, Strategic Deficit Disorder. That's what I call all of this. That's what I've been trying to describe. Earlier in the episode, we, we tried to lay out the linguistic framework of tactics, operations, and strategy, and grand strategy, so that we could talk about this and have a consensus on just what it is we're, we're, we're trying to get at here. What I'm trying to get at is this. Here is my conclusion, is that strategic deficit disorder is the notion that when it comes to strategic and grand strategic extrapolation by a country or alliance of countries engaging in this, it seems to me due diligence and an innate responsibility of all those who set these massive trains in motion to consider what are the second and third order effects? What are the unintended consequences? What are the branches and sequels that we're going to employ when we run across these obstacles? Are we going to simply stop at the obstacle and stroke our chins and try to determine what's going on? That can be bloody expensive in both variations of that phrase. It simply isn't the way rational human beings should do these kind of things. I am often asked, Bill, if you have to conduct a counterinsurgency, how do you succeed? My number one answer is you don't get involved in counterinsurgency in the first place. And again, I know I sound like I'm 
being a champion for you listeners listening to future episodes, but we're going to go in depth about why these things occur when we discover the inefficacy, the ineffectiveness, and the impossibility of Western counterinsurgency notions. But we'll do that some other time. What I want to leave you with is this. I want you to consider, I want you to grok, I want you to try to understand. And by the way, if you disagree with me, let me know. But I want you to know that imagine we have these massive enterprises, military enterprises. As a matter of fact, if I recall, I saw a startling uh, piece of trivia the other day where I guess 70, 75 billion dollars have has been given to Ukraine in the present conflict with Russia. Russia, I think, has a total defense budget, military budget, just south of 100 billion dollars. And the U.S. Congress has just approved, I think, north of $800 billion for the DOD establishment in the United States. So I leave you with this question. Are we really getting bang for that buck? Thank you. So thanks for listening. Any comments? I appreciate constructive criticism, technical comments, historical comments, um, questions you may have of uh, book recommendations, things like that. Be sure to write me at cgpodcast at pm.me. That's cgpodcast at pm.me. Thanks for your listenership. I appreciate you tuning in. This is Bill, out.